0: Hello and welcome to my show, Shuvra Deb with you, with me, your host, Shuvra Deb. In this show, I will be discussing mental health with the aim of raising mental health awareness in our community and in society as a whole. The genesis of the show is my own pivotal life-changing experience of being in a Category 5 hurricane back in 2017, That experience led me to suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD. I am hosting this show in order to let you know that you are not alone if something life-changing has happened to you from which you are struggling to heal. ShuvraDeb Deb With You focuses on a range of topics relevant to mental health and to raising awareness of issues surrounding mental health. Hello everyone and welcome back to my show Shuvra Deb with you. I hope that you are all doing really well. As you know by now and for those of you tuning in for the first time, my show is about raising awareness around the topic of mental health. I want us all to be living in a society where looking after our own mental health and the mental health of those we love and care about is no longer stigmatized as is currently the case in society. I want us all to live in a world where we no longer make that distinction between mental and physical health, and where each and every aspect of our health is considered in an inclusive and holistic way. Whilst my show is about raising awareness around the issue of mental health, I do want to make it clear at the very outset that I'm not a mental health professional and I'm not a doctor. If you do need to seek professional help, then I really encourage you to do so. And we have a great number of options here in the Cayman Islands where you can reach out for support. Infinite Mind Care provides counselling services and can be reached on 926 The Alex Panton Foundation offers support to people up to the age of 30 and their information is on their website, alexpantonfoundation.ky. Loud Silent Voices provides mental health support and their number is 922 3847 and their email is info at lsv.support. And as always, I love hearing what you guys want to say about my discussion topic. So if you have any comments, questions, feedback, please do email me at shuvradeb82 at gmail.com. That's spelt S-H-U-V-R-A-D-E-B, the numbers 82 at gmail.com. And... I have some super exciting news, which is that my podcast has launched. Shuvra Deb With You is now available on Spotify, Apple and Google Podcasts. Please do look me up and start listening and you can do so on demand. Please do go ahead, follow me, share with your friends and review my show. I really appreciate all of your feedback. So please do let me know your views. And if you're enjoying my show, tell your friends. My show today is called Valentine's Love Special, self-love, self-compassion and gratitude. And before you all start to groan out loud about the perhaps cliched nature of my chosen topic today and before you tune out, just let me say that this show is going to be anything but a cliche. I think this is a great time of year to talk about love with Valentine's Day upon us. And I'm not approaching love from solely the angle of romantic love. We all know that love comes in all and many different guises, all different forms, and we have and express love for different people, for our pets, plants, our planet, and for causes behind which we have put our effort. So it is in that holistic, all-inclusive manner that I'm going to be discussing love, and I will be placing emphasis on self-love, self-compassion, and gratitude. But before I get into the content of my show today, no doubt you will all have seen the devastating news of the earthquakes in Turkey and Syria, which struck on Tuesday morning. At the time of recording this show, the death toll stands at over 11,000 people, with the United Nations reporting that this could be as high as 20,000 lives lost once the full extent of damage and loss is known. My show today is about love, and I will be taking you through a heart opening meditation later in the show. If you do the meditation, I invite you to keep the people of Turkey and Syria in your hearts and in your minds whilst undertaking the practice. I consider spirituality and spiritual practices, call that religion, meditation, or yoga, I consider all of those practices either to spring from love, whether it's a love for God, for spirit, or love of the practice itself. I also feel that undertaking practices, such as meditation or yoga, allow us to become closer to being in a state of love. Love for ourselves, love for other beings, love for our planet, love for our pets. Love can be directed at many and all wondrous things. So with that in mind, I want to start by looking at love as a state of being. As a state in which we can all be. I've spoken on a few of my previous shows about the book Being Ram Dass, by ramdas and rameshwar das in that book which is essentially an autobiography of ramdas he says the following it was years before i fully recognized that what had really opened me up was maharaji's love since then i've learned love is the true expression of a realized being power comes from love not the other way round over the years that love has become the dominant theme of my inner journey my path has become a pilgrimage of the heart, a journey from the mind to the heart. Maharaji was the name of Ramdas's guru, from whom he learnt compassion, service and love. The way Ram Dass describes it, the love he felt from his guru was an unconditional love, a kind of love he had never felt before. He says it was basking in that unconditional love which started Ramdas's journey to love everyone serve everyone and remember God, as was taught to him by his guru. The love that Ram Dass describes is a state of being. It's more than a feeling. It's more than a doing, an act of love, for example. It is a state of being. So how do we get to love as a state of being? One of the ways we can get there is by practicing self-compassion. And one of the ways we can be more compassionate towards ourselves is through the language we use to speak to and about ourselves. I have spoken about internal mind chatter on my previous shows and how by quieting the mind chatter, we open up space for inspiration and for calm. For those of you who missed those shows, I speak about negative self-talk and internal mind chatter on my fourth show, which is called The Power of Language, and also on my fifth show, which is entitled The Four Agreements. In The Power of Language, I discuss how the language we use influences our internal views and society's views around mental health and around self-care. In The Four Agreements, I talk about the book of the same title by Don Miguel Ruiz, in which the author brings us ancient Toltec wisdom and teachings. Amongst these teachings is an invitation not to use the word against ourselves. By speaking more kindly to ourselves, we place ourselves in a better position to forgive ourselves when we consider that we have done or said something that we are unhappy about. And by being able to forgive ourselves for things we consider we need to be forgiven for, we start to have more compassion for ourselves. People will often much more easily forgive a mistake or a behavior committed by someone else, by a friend, for example, then they will forgive themselves for the very same thing. Dr. Kristin Neff in Self and Identity identifies self-compassion as involving self-kindness versus self-judgment, a sense of common humanity versus isolation and mindfulness versus over-identification. Dr. Neff makes the point that with self-compassion we give to ourselves the same kindness and care that we would give to a friend. What Dr. Neff means by self-kindness versus self-judgment is treating ourselves with care and understanding rather than with harsh judgment. Along with this when we practice self-kindness we have a desire to alleviate our own suffering. Dr. Neff in a lecture which is available on the Barclay Wellbeing Institute's website describes actively soothing and comforting ourselves as acts of self-kindness A bit like wrapping ourselves up in a comfortable blanket and giving ourselves a hug. Or if you're like me, wrapping yourself in a cozy, comfortable blanket whilst cuddling a cat. Dr. Neff describes self-kindness in the context of alleviating our own suffering as taking an active stand to do whatever we can do to make ourselves feel as good as possible. In talking about a sense of common humanity versus feeling a sense of isolation, In that same lecture, Dr Neff describes this as seeing our own experience as part of the larger human experience, as opposed to seeing it as an isolating or abnormal situation. Dr Neff reminds us of the importance of recognising that life and us are all imperfect. Things are very rarely, if ever, perfect. Dr Neff states that on a logical level, we are all aware that we as individuals are human beings. As groups of people, we are all human beings. Logically, we are also capable of acknowledging that all humans experience some form of suffering at some point or another. However, and Dr Neff uses these examples, when something blows up at work or someone rejects us, we almost instantly become irrational and tell ourselves that this is happening to us and only us. We may even start an internal why me refrain with ourselves. We tell ourselves that we are the only one going through that experience And that leads us to feel isolated from others. All of that is the egoic reaction. All of that is our ego surfacing. And I will come back more to the ego later in my show. So when things go wrong, the natural and immediate reaction, which a lot of us have, is to jump to the conclusion that it's the end of the world, or that there is, as Dr. Neff describes, something abnormal happening in this sequence of events that we are somehow the only one to whom this bad thing has ever happened. And of course, that's not true. Things go wrong in every human being's life. The current Dalai Lama was a 15-year-old boy when he found himself to be the leader of 6 million people and whilst facing the threat of a full-scale war. He was a young man of 23 years of age when he had to escape from his own country, from his home, in disguise, dressed as a soldier, in the hope that he would not be recognized and executed. Life is not perfect and neither is it fair. But this is a fact that all human beings have to deal with. So when something goes wrong in our lives and we jump to the why me refrain, we jump to the conclusion that we are alone in our suffering. By doing that, we are isolating ourselves from each other. We are taking ourselves out of the shared, out of the common human experience that we all go through. Dr. Neff states that if we feel isolated from others in our suffering, that has an overall negative impact on our physical and mental health. And by remembering that suffering is the common human experience, we allow ourselves to feel less isolated from others. We allow ourselves the grace to see that we all experience suffering and that in turn is likely to make us feel more connected to our fellow human beings, having a knock-on effect of making us feel better. I will pause here though and say that there is a fine line. Going back to my Hurricane Irma experience, after the event, I felt entirely isolated from others who had not experienced the same horrors that I had been through. Whilst I took comfort being around my friends who had had that shared experience, I could see even then how if I had stayed for weeks or months or or years in that same group, itself isolated from others, it would have become damaging, at least for me. A group of traumatised and, at that stage, untreated, traumatised people all hanging out together in isolation to others would highly likely have been quite damaging to us all and may ultimately have hampered recovery. But outside of that context, outside of the context of extreme trauma, by appreciating and acknowledging that suffering is a common human experience, we can reduce the feeling of self-isolation. And by doing that, we are practising self-compassion. We are being kind to ourselves, We are lessening our burden of loneliness and all the feelings that come from feeling alone and cut off from other people and isolated from the human experience. Dr. Neff also talks about mindfulness being more important than over-identification. What she means by this is the importance of avoiding either extreme of suppressing or of running away from painful feelings. By avoiding these two extremes, we allow ourselves to be with and feel our pain or to sit with our pain, as it is often described. Dr. Neff says that we have to be aware of our suffering in order to give it, and therefore to give ourselves, compassion. By being with and by confronting our suffering, we are allowing ourselves to be vulnerable, and being vulnerable ultimately leads to growth. Another aspect of this, Dr. Neff says to us, is that when there is a problem, when we are suffering because of that problem, She says that it is very tempting to go straight into problem-solving mode. It is very tempting immediately to start trying to find the solution to the problem that we are facing, to try to fix it, to try to find a way around it so that the problem no longer exists and so that the suffering we are feeling no longer exists and can be brought to an end. However, as Dr Neff says, without first sitting with our suffering, without first acknowledging, experiencing and expressing how we are feeling about the situation that is causing us to suffer by heading straight into problem-solving mode we are trying to fix the situation at a time when we may not be at our psychological best we are trying to move forward when we may not be in the best place to come up with the best solution because something shocking or unpleasant has happened to us that we have not taken the time to process any next step that is taken in that frame of mind is likely to be taken when we are in a distracted state, when we are not at our best. And by doing that, we are doing ourselves a disservice. We are not giving ourselves the best shot at actually fixing the problem by going in headfirst without having first taken a step back and processed our emotions surrounding the situation and the suffering. By acknowledging the difficulties presented by the situation, we are validating our emotions and we are validating ourselves and how we feel. Once we have gone through that process of facing the suffering and properly feeling into our emotions, we will be in a much better place to take active steps and to do to do something proactive and positive to help ourselves to solve the situation. Dr. Neff's research shows that self-compassion builds coping skills and resilience, which in turn radically improves our mental and physical well-being. She says self-compassion motivates us to make changes and reach our goals, not because we're inadequate, but because we take care and want to be happy. So by practicing self-compassion, by developing self-love, by opening our hearts to ourselves, we increase our skill set and we radically improve our mental and physical health. One of the common myths of self-compassion about which Dr. Neff speaks is that self-compassion is deemed as being self-indulgent. I think a lot of that confusion around self-compassion and self-indulgence comes from the society in which we live. We are trained from childhood to get high grades, to achieve in exams, to obtain entry to the best university or college, or to get the best job we can possibly get, to get a promotion, to get a pay rise, to get a bonus, to get, to get, to get. With all that fixation on getting, on achieving... We've fallen into a pattern of thinking and behaviour where if we do anything for ourselves, then we are being self-indulgent, we are being selfish and are therefore distracted from the getting, from the obtaining. Taking time and attention and intentionally changing the way we think and speak to and about ourselves is not self-indulgence. It's actually self-compassion. So an example of self-compassion can be this. And this may apply more to the younger members of my audience, and I've spoken about this example before, but I'll do it again because I like it. You get a low grade in your school or college or university assignment, and you start to beat yourself up, talking bad about yourself, about how you're thick and how you'll never amount to anything, about how it's all probably over for you. That's dramatic, but that's what we do to ourselves. These are the kinds of things that many of us say to ourselves when we don't quite achieve something we had hoped to achieve. These are the kinds of things we say to ourselves, which is the absolute opposite of practicing self-compassion. So instead of taking out the internal baseball bat and pounding ourselves over the head with it, the next time we don't quite get the grade or the result that we'd hoped for, firstly we need to tell ourselves that it's okay. No one's perfect and no one ever achieves every single thing they set out to achieve. This is also the opportunity to sit with the negative feelings that we may be feeling This is the chance to be mindful of our suffering and to process those emotions. And then once we have had the chance to process and to be vulnerable with ourselves by embracing our emotions, if it's a studying or or college issue, then we ask ourselves whether we want to, for example, change our studying patterns. Or do we want to read different things around the topic? Do we want to see a tutor? So here's a case in point. I received an E grade in one of my English Literature A-level assignments. In the UK where I studied, A-levels are the round of exams we take just before going to university or college, around about the age of 18. The grading system is an A for what is considered to be the highest mark, and I think it's an F for what's considered to be the lowest, and I'd received an E. So here I am with this E for my assignment, around three months before my actual A-level exam in English Literature. And those exams would determine whether I would get into university to be able to study English literature. So I was pretty shocked and um, horrified at this result. But I managed to persuade my parents to let me go off to an independent college in another part of London that I'd found, which did intensive revision courses pre-A level. My main motivation for going to this college was, of course, to improve generally so that I could be sure of getting an A. But also, seeing how well educated these college teachers were, teachers who had been to Oxford and Cambridge for their degrees, and being pig-headed as I was, I wanted to put that assignment in front of those teachers and ask for a regrade. So I did exactly that. And when the teacher came back to me with the regrade, he told me that before he marked it how he wanted to mark it, he checked it with two other colleagues of his. And he awarded me a B. And then he taught me how to make it an A. And that's what I did. So there you have it. One person's view of something you do may not necessarily be the right one, and it may not necessarily be the only one. The next time you don't quite get the grade, the thing that you've set your sights on, acknowledge that this has happened to you. Acknowledge this to be the setback that you might feel it is. Embrace and sit with those emotions. And then, once you've done that, change tactic. Reiterate. And whilst you do that, don't take out your internal baseball bat. Don't beat yourself up on how much of a failure you are, because of course that's a load of nonsense anyway. Instead, put the baseball bat away. Tell yourself, yeah, okay, so I didn't get it this time, but I can and will get it the next time or the time after that. I'm not perfect, no one's perfect. And these are the changes I'm going to make to make sure I get it the next time or the time after that or even the time after that. There are other benefits to self-compassion. Stanford University considers compassion to be sufficiently important that Stanford Medicine has created an entire center dedicated to it, the Center for Compassion and Altruism Research and Education. The Center at Stanford reports that self-compassion has many benefits. Amongst these are resilience, increased productivity, and decreased stress levels. An article cited by Stanford University, written by Emma Sapala, lecturer at the Yale School of Management and written for Psychology Today, reports, If compassion and community service are an integral part of your life, the effects of a stressful life experience can be effectively erased and our mortality not affected. This good news comes from a fascinating study by psychologist Michael Poulam, PhD at the University of Buffalo, who reports, that there was no link between stress and health among people who reported helping their friends and neighbours in the past year. But among people who didn't engage in such helping, stressful life events predicted decreased odds of survival over the next five years. So, not only is self-compassion beneficial for us, compassion for others increases longevity. Compassion is also a form of love. Being altruistic, helping our neighbours can become a state of being. A state of love. In the words of Ram thus, billions of acts create suffering in the world, acts of ignorance, greed, violence. But in the same way, each act of caring, the billion tiny ways that we offer compassion, wisdom and joy to one another, serves to preserve and heal our world. When I help someone change their perspective on their individual problems, I also change society. And there are mental health benefits of compassion and self-compassion too. The Harvard Medical School reports, self-compassion yields a number of benefits, including lower levels of anxiety and depression. Self-love ties in with self-compassion. Both are an important aspect of love. And self-love kind of flows on from self-compassion. Before I start talking about self-love and the importance of it, let's look at what it means first. The Brain and Behaviour Research Foundation defines self-love in the following way. Self-love is a state of appreciation for oneself that grows from actions that support our physical, psychological and spiritual growth. Self-love means having a high regard for your own well-being and happiness. Self-love means taking care of your own needs and not sacrificing your well-being to please others. Self-love means not settling for less than you deserve. Self-love can mean something different for each person because we all have many different ways to take care of ourselves. Figuring out what self-love looks like for you as an individual is an important part of your mental health. The article goes on to describe what self-love can look like. Amongst the practices that promote self-love are prioritizing yourself, giving yourself a break from self-judgment, and setting healthy boundaries. Another thing we can all benefit from is positive self-talk, and this can include using affirmations. Looking at each of these, prioritizing yourself can include things like saying no to an invitation from a friend if, for example, you're really exhausted and really just feel like staying at home. Rather than making up an excuse, oh, I have to work late, or I need to be up super early tomorrow to take my kid to soccer practice. Rather than making something up, just say, Thank you very much for the invitation, but I just need to rest tonight. I'll catch up with you next time. Your true friends will understand and not put you under pressure. And you will feel a lot better for having told the truth and not made up an excuse. The energy of misleading our friends, even when we have good intentions, is never good. A lot of the time, I feel we can end up saying yes to things we would otherwise not be saying yes to, because there's an element of people-pleasing going on. In other words, we don't want to be the bad girl or the bad guy, the killjoy, or we simply don't want to let people down. But you see, the difference between being a people pleaser and doing things out of kindness and generosity is that with people pleasing, we are doing something because we find it hard to say no, or because we are afraid of no longer being liked if we don't say yes. On the other hand, being kind and generous with our time or our gifts or talents are things that we do intentionally and out of a desire to do them and when we are in a balanced state. People-pleasing is the very opposite of self-love and self-compassion. Some of the characteristics of people-pleasing include regularly taking on extra work when we know we don't have the time or capacity to really take it on. When in people-pleasing mode, we may also just go along with things that other people want from us in order to avoid friction. Someone who people pleases may also feel pressure to be friendly, nice, and cheerful at all times, which is a lot of pressure to put ourselves under. And it really is unsustainable. It's also the opposite of prioritizing yourself and the opposite of self-love. Giving yourself a break from self-judgment is also a great way of exercising self-love. There are reasons proven by science that actually make self-judgment harmful. Lindsay Staples on Psychology Today states... When we judge, we mentally divide the world into categories of good and bad. We create shortcuts by summarizing complex information into handy labels such as stupid, smart, ugly, crazy, etc. Lindsay Staples goes on to write that the reason our brains have the capacity to judge and to make judgments is in fact for our survival. And I have talked about the survival part of the brain on some of my other shows, about how our brains are geared in a certain way to help humans stay alive. For example, our ability to judge a situation lets us know whether it's safe to cross the road when a car is speeding towards us and it's unlikely to be able to stop if we step off of the sidewalk directly into the path of the oncoming car on the road. Our ability to make judgments lets us know that when we cut ourselves, chopping a vegetable for example, we need to stop the bleeding because bleeding from a cut finger is bad Stopping the bleeding with a band-aid is good. What's not so good is self-judgment when something in our lives goes wrong. For example, a romantic relationship ends, we feel terrible and sad about the whole thing, and our thoughts go something like this. I will never find love ever again. Or, what's wrong with me? Or, why would I think someone could ever love me? Ever been there? There right now? Stop. Stop right this minute. All of these thoughts are examples of negative self-judgment and there are ways in which we can stop this pattern of negative self-judgment repeating in our heads. We can do this by asking ourselves the following questions. Where is this thought of negative self-judgment coming from? Is it coming from the immediate feelings of sadness, shock and loneliness surrounding the breakup? Is there a deeper root cause of this negative self-judgment? What seeds were planted in our minds in our childhood that are leading to this thought pattern? How did our caregivers speak to us in our childhood? Is it their voice that we are hearing and not our own in this negative, self-critical judgement mode? And as stated in an article by Alyssa Mayranz on the website for Empower Your Mind Therapy, remember that the judgement is a feeling, it is a reaction, it is not a fact. Setting healthy boundaries is another way of practicing self-care and self-love, especially so in a society where personal space seems to be becoming less valued and always having to be on appears to carry more weight. Whether that's by feeling we have to be responsive to an instant message in all of the various forms that these things have taken on, or we are being commanded to respond to an email by return, whatever that even means, because of course, by return is Almost defunct, it's a reference to by return of post. That is, the next time the postman brings mail. I bet sometimes we all wish there was such a thing as by return of email and we could have an automatic reply saying, email's only accepted at 9am and 3pm, for example. TheScienceOfPeople.com defines healthy boundaries in the following way. Healthy boundaries are the limits you place around your time, emotions, body and mental health to stay resilient, solid and content with who you are. These empowering borders protect you from being used, drained, or manipulated by others. Some simple ways of setting and maintaining healthy boundaries include firstly identifying what our boundaries are. An example of a boundary for you might mean making sure you take your full hour at lunchtime, uninterrupted, to eat your lunch and go for a walk, or read an article, or hey, maybe even listen to a podcast. A healthy boundary for you might mean making sure you are up and out to the gym first thing in the morning. It might mean making sure that you start your day right by eating a healthy breakfast. So having identified what our boundaries are, how do we stick to them? One of the best ways of sticking to our boundaries is to communicate what they are with our family and our friends. And where we may feel like someone is putting pressure on us to go beyond our boundaries, we should think about politely communicating again what those boundaries are. There's also the option of compromise. Your friend really wants to meet you for a drink and, for example, share their day with you. You, on the other hand, had planned an early night. But if you do want to see your friend and still get your early night, communicate that to them. I would love to see you tonight, but I can only stay for an hour. Where shall we meet? More often than not, once you've communicated your boundaries to people, they will respect them. A really simple way to move towards self-love is to practice speaking well to ourselves And we can do this by saying positive affirmations to ourselves out loud. Some of my favorite ones are, I deserve good things. What I have to say matters. I will get through this. And I believe in myself. It might feel cringy or corny or cheesy the first few times you say things like this out loud, but I invite you to give it a go anyway. And even if it does feel cheesy, you're doing something nice for yourself. So just go for it. Be cheesy. Now, of course, no show about love, especially when delivered around the time of Valentine's Day, would be complete without at least a bit of a discussion on romantic love. I'm asked quite a lot, how do I open my heart? How do I let love in? The answer lies not in the mind or the body. The answers are already within all of us. The answers lie in our heart. One of the simplest ways I have of opening my heart is to do it through meditation And to do that by bringing my focus into my heart chakra which is the energy center located right by the breastbone or sternum where our hearts are located. Practicing a heart opening meditation opens our heart in so many ways. We welcome in self-love which of course is where it all starts. And we also allow ourselves to welcome in love from others. Whether that's fellow beings in general or the opening up of space for a romantic interest to enter our lives. And for those of you interested in frequencies, the heart chakra operates at 639 hertz as regards the frequency. Therefore, if you want to try a heart chakra meditation, I invite you to find some music which plays at that frequency and have that on in the background or on your earphones whilst meditating. And with that, I'm going to take you through a heart chakra meditation. do this if you are not driving. And for those of you listening on my podcast, my show notes will tell you where in my show this meditation is at, so you can skip right to that part of the timer if you would like to do so. For those of you who like working with crystals, see if you have a piece of rose quartz or green aventurine or emerald to hand. And if you do, go grab this and either hold the crystal during your meditation or place it somewhere close to you. Equally, if you haven't the faintest idea what I'm talking about, or don't have crystals lying around, that's also fine. Using crystals is not essential to the meditation. It's only a nice touch if you happen to have crystals available to you. So, find a quiet and comfortable place to sit. Sit down with a straight spine and get comfortable. Take a few moments to ground into the space you are in. Gently flutter your eyelids closed. Let's take three deep breaths together. One deep and clearing breath. Then take another deep and joyful breath. And a third deep and comforting breath. Then slowly start to return to your normal pace of breath, keeping your eyelids closed. And just focus in on your breath for a few cycles of breath. As you settle into the practice, start to see, sense, or feel the colour pink or the colour green. Pink represents unconditional love in a soft and nurturing way. Green represents giving and receiving love to ourselves and to others. Go ahead and pick the colour that you're most drawn to. And if you feel called to both colours, focus on both. And whilst you are focusing on the colour or the colours of your choice, Keep breathing gently. the green or both. On your next in breath, see, sense, feel or invite your color to enter through the top of your head. And on your next out breath, send the color to your heart. Maybe see the color pink or green or both coming in through the top of your head. Maybe sense or simply invite the color to enter through the top of your head on your in breath. And then on your out breath, send or invite the colour into your heart. Repeat this breath and colour cycle a few times with the music in the background and I will keep a check on the time for you. On your next in-breath, see, sense, feel or invite the colour pink or green or both to enter through the top of your head or crown chakra and allow it to travel down the inside of your body. On your next out-breath, send the pink, the green or both colours into your heart, feeling your heart open as you do this. Repeat this breath cycle with the colours a few more times with the music in the background and I will keep a check on the time for you. And when you are ready, start to let the practice go. Come back to your normal pace of breath if you're not already there. Come back to your normal pace of breath. Start to feel the contact of your body against the chair on which you are sitting. Gently bring some motion, some movement to your body, and then gently flutter your eyelids open. I hope that was a nice practice for you. It's the kind of practice that you can spend a little more time on if you feel called to do so. Pick a piece of music if that helps you and keep repeating the breath and the colour cycle with each breath cycle. In order to open our hearts, the type of meditation that I just took you through is just one of the things that we can do. There are more practical things that we can do too, which are also intentional. Some of these practical steps to opening our hearts include removing obstacles that may be serving to block our hearts for example, are we holding a grudge against someone, an ex-boyfriend or an ex-wife perhaps? Without letting go of the past, without moving on from the past, we don't make the space for experiencing the present. In turn, that blocks us from a better and more fulfilling future than what, we, that, than what may have been our experience of life up to now. And letting go means forgiving. We've all heard the saying that we forgive not for them, but for us. By forgiving a person an ill that was done to us we give ourselves the grace to move on and to release all the negativity surrounding that grudge. If our internal speech on this particular topic, this grudge we are holding onto, is a constant cycle of negativity, then that is the energy we will be carrying around with us. A negative energy is a block to positive and new things and new people entering our lives, our orbit. Another block to letting a new person into our lives is the pain we may be holding on to relating to the failure of a previous relationship, for example. Thoughts such as, well, why would it work out this time when it didn't the last time and the time before that and so on? Or, I can't possibly go through that again, will quite literally put up an invisible wall right around us. That wall will stop us from finding something new, something different. And yes, worst case scenario, the next relationship might end too. It might even end badly. Equally, there is just as much of a chance that it will go swimmingly well and you'll both have a great time. It's kind of 50-50 as to which way it could go. So without bringing down that protective but isolating wall we've put up around ourselves, we cut ourselves off from the at least 50% chance that a new person might just might be someone with whom we have a lot of fun someone who helps us grow and who we help grow in return staying with romantic love and opening our hearts one of the blocks to a relationship is quite often the expectations we set up for ourselves we might go around creating this image of the person we think we want to be with what they look like what clothes they wear the color of their hair Even things like what job they have, where they live, what car they drive, their level of education. But distill each of these things down and what they are. And they are exactly that. They are things. The gorgeous, well-dressed billionaire with the perfect hair, teeth, job, house and car may be the most boring person we've ever had dinner with. They may be the most selfish person we've ever met. Or they may just not vibe with us and we may not vibe with them. One of my friends said to me a few years ago that if I wanted to find someone to have something meaningful with, I needed to let go of the checklist, the checklist of things. Instead, she invited me to focus in on how I wanted to feel. Did I want to feel loved, cared for, prioritised? Did I want to laugh, to have fun? And would I be able to give all of those things in return? And suddenly, by focusing on how we want to feel, how we want them to feel, we release the expectations that society or our families or friends have put on what our romantic relationships should look like. And by releasing those expectations, we might just find something beautiful and meaningful and have a load of fun along the way. That was all quite serious, hey? So let me talk to you about something a bit more fun on this topic of romantic love. I'm guessing that many of you will already know about this, but I only recently came across the Five Love Languages, which is a trademark registered in the US. If you haven't come across this yet, I wholeheartedly invite you to look up fivelovelanguages.com using the number five. My podcast listeners will find all the online and other references I make on this show in my show notes, so go check those out. The landing page of the Five Love Languages website opens with the words, Relationships don't have to be complicated. Join the millions of people strengthening their relationships with the five love languages. So what is all this about? When it comes to romantic relationships, Dr. Gary Chapman, author, speaker and marriage counsellor, has identified that there are five types of languages or ways of communicating how we like to give and receive love. The five different love languages are, firstly, acts of service, secondly, receiving gifts, thirdly, quality time, fourth, words of affirmation, and finally, physical touch. So people who like to be loved by being shown acts of service feel that actions speak louder than words. Some of us prefer to receive heartfelt and meaningful gifts as an act of love. For some of us, quality time in the form of undivided attention speaks to us. For some, it's words of affirmation. For example, unsolicited compliments and words of encouragement. For example, in relation to a project that we might be working on. And finally, appropriate physical touch is what works for some of us. For example, by receiving a hug. When you go onto the website, fivelovelanguages.com, you'll see that there's a really cool and fun quiz that you can take to see what your love languages are. The way the quiz works is that, having answered the questions that are there, the algorithm works out the percentage bias that you have for each of the five love languages. So, for example, you may be a person for whom 30% of the way you like to be loved is by way of receiving affirmations, 20% maybe that you like physical touch, and 10% maybe that you like acts of kindness, and so on. And I invite all of you to take the quiz, whether you're in a relationship or single or somewhere in between, it's so much fun. And if you are seeing someone, invite them to take the quiz too. If you are taking the, taking the quiz with someone, the 5 website invites you to exchange your results. The website goes on to say, people grow closer when they choose to consistently speak each other's love language. And there's also a book that accompanies the quiz. I haven't read it yet, but it's definitely on my list. If you are in a relationship, once you have each identified your individual love languages, you can communicate with one another in a more meaningful way, keeping in mind how the other likes to be loved. And that should make for a stronger bond between you. And if you're still struggling with opening your heart, that's okay. Another slightly different way of opening our hearts is to practice gratitude, something that I have spoken about a lot on my previous shows. If we are struggling to open our our hearts for whatever reason, instead of focusing on that struggle, instead of focusing directly on opening our hearts, we can come at it from a different perspective. We can come to opening our hearts from the angle of practicing gratitude. The practice of gratitude has exponential benefits to our lives. Gratitude has physical health benefits, mental health benefits and emotional health benefits. Amongst these benefits are that gratitude helps improve sleep. Research.com cites an article by Wood, Lloyd and Atkins which says, Cultivating gratitude throughout the day nurtures more positive thoughts that can help you drift into a more peaceful sleep. Researchers from the University of Manchester in England examined the correlation between gratitude and thoughts before sleeping and how these affect an individual's sleep. By using a cross-sectional questionnaire the researchers discovered that gratitude drives negative thoughts away, especially before bedtime, thus making more room for positive thoughts and reflections that contribute to a more peaceful and longer uninterrupted slumber. And a pre-bedtime gratitude journal is perfect for noting down, say, three to five things for which we are grateful from that day. The Research.com article also states That gratitude helps lower high blood pressure according to robert a emmons a leading researcher on gratitude gratitude is a form of medicine clinical trials have proven that the practice of gratitude can leave lasting positive effects on a person's health emmons states that individuals who have a grateful attitude tend to be more health conscious such as avoiding smoking and drinking alcohol which contributes to neutralizing the blood pressure of hypertensive patients. There are also mental health benefits of practicing gratitude, including an increased sense of self-esteem. Research.com cites a 2014 study undertaken by Chen and Wu. That study found that gratitude boosts self-confidence. The study focused on athletes and shows that participants with high levels of gratitude experienced an increase in self-esteem over the period of six months during which the research was conducted. And whilst gratitude and being grateful cannot cure depression, numerous scientific studies have found that gratitude can help bring more positive interventions into an individual's life when they are suffering from depression. For example, gratitude has the capacity to strengthen personal relationships Which has the knock-on effect of reinforcing the support system around someone who may be suffering from depression and anxiety. As regards the emotional benefits of practicing gratitude, practicing and showing gratitude has the ability to improve our mood. Research.com states, gratitude plays a significant role in enhancing positive emotions. By expressing gratitude on a regular basis, our focus will shift to the positive aspects of our day which has the effect of lifting our frame of mind and spirit. With all of those benefits that can be derived from the simple practice of gratitude, it's difficult not to experience an enhanced life. And as part of that, to start opening our hearts to ourselves as well as to others. The final topic that I would like to touch on today is really about what can be another block to love and a block to having an open heart. And it's something universal that all of us human beings have to battle with, for most of us on a daily basis, and that is our egos. The egoic reaction to all and many things can be at the center of what can be a barrier to self-compassion, to self-love and to love for others. The ego is what separates us from each other, causing us to see ourselves in separateness, as separate from the whole, from the whole shared human experience. In the context of relationships with other people, not necessarily just the romantic ones, but any kind of relationship with another person, the University of Texas at El Paso tells us that where the relationship comes from a place of ego, we risk being more into what the person can give to us. The moment the focus on getting what we can get is taken away, there is no more to be gained from the relationship and it likely ends. Love or relationships based on ego, as opposed to authenticity, coming from an open heart, is also a projection. We develop an idea of what the relationship should be and even of what it actually is. We end up falling in love with the idea of someone or something, which is not love, it's ego. Scienceandnonduality.com tells us that a true relationship is not a fantasy, but is something based on reality. The reality of truly being there for your friend or partner through a bereavement, a job loss or something else that's hard for the other person, for example. Practices that promote self-compassion and self-love have the effect of opening our hearts. That, in turn, makes us more empathetic to other people's suffering and their experience of life. By having that empathy and compassion for others, we step closer towards taming our egos towards dissolving the us-and-them dichotomy. We step closer towards opening our hearts and to loving ourselves and the other without condition. We step closer to being love as a state. In closing today, I want to leave you with the following from Daphne Rose Kingmer. Ultimately, self-compassion is a series of choices. A moment by moment conscious turning away from that which will harm your spirit toward that which will nourish and sustain you it is choosing in any particular situation and over and over again whether you'll treat yourself well or beat yourself up whether you'll deny yourself or treat yourself as lovingly as you treat your child or your most precious friend self-compassion means looking at yourself with kindness with a conscious awareness of your sufferings and in time with a deep appreciation for the way you have transformed them. My friend and extraordinary yoga teacher, Sarah Thompson in the British Virgin Islands posted this on her social media. I reached out to her straight away about the quote as it's just so beautiful. And I hope you think so too, listeners. This beautiful saying from Daphne Rose Kingmer summarizes and encapsulates so well what my show today has been all about, which is that before we can be anything, before we can do anything successfully, we must absolutely practice, find and feel self-love and self-compassion. Self-love and self-compassion are absolutely the things that have to come first each time and every time. This is the choice that we all have and this is the choice that i invite us all to make each time and every time if any of the topics that i have discussed today have affected you please reach out to someone whether that's a friend or a professional for support in the cayman islands infinite mind care provides counseling services and can be reached on 9260882 and the alex panton foundation offers support to people up to the age of 30 and their information is on their website, alexpantonfoundation.ky. Loud Silent Voices also provides mental health support. They can be reached on 922 3847 or on their email, which is info at lsv.support. Tune in to my show, Shuvra Deb, with you every Thursday at 2pm right here on Bobo FM 89.1 in the Cayman Islands. And for those of you listening on the podcast, which is available now on Spotify, Apple, and Google, for you guys, if you want to catch my show as it drops first on the radio, be sure to tune in. You can find me online every Thursday at 2 p.m. on Bobo FM 89.1 at dmsbroadcasting.ky. Thank you for listening. See you next time. Bye for now. Thank you all so much for tuning in and for listening to Shuvra Deb with you. And please do tune in every Thursday at 2pm on Bobo FM 89.1 for more topics related to and relevant to mental health. If any of you would like to reach out to me directly about any of the issues I've discussed, please do email me at shuvradeb82 at gmail.com. That's spelt S-H-U-V-R-A-D-E-B, the numbers 82 at gmail.com. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening.